this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be asking a hypothetical question with a non-hypothetical person, somebody who ran in the last municipal election. We're going to be asking him what would have happened or what might have happened if all the stuff that we now know about Sewergate had been out in public before we went to the polls. Because Andrew Dreschel today in The Spectator wrote that this was all known and council chose not to make this public before the election. Could things have changed? How different might council have looked if we had known this stuff before we went to the polls? We'll talk about that. Uh, We're going to be chatting about Grammar, an international organization dedicated to one particular aspect of Grammar shut down, waved the white flag this week saying, we give... Nobody cares anymore. Grammar doesn't matter, apparently. Does it? Does grammar still matter? Does spelling still matter? And on December the 9th, Russia is going to be front and center as far as a topic of discussion at the World Anti-Doping Agency meetings because apparently they say, we're told, they have once again tampered with results of doping things, which is now creating all kinds of problems. This is after what happened in Sochi. This is where Russia led to Russia being banned from the last Olympics, and there's going to be discussion about Russia being banned from the Olympics again. If it's true... How do you not learn this by now? How do you not fix this? And if they haven't fixed it, and if they've done it again, what should the response be? Becky Scott, Olympic gold medalist, former member of WADA, joins us to talk about that. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Little over a year ago, it seems like it was longer at this point, but it's only a year. A little over a year ago, my next guest, my first guest, lost the mayoral election to Fred Eisenberger, uh, a race that was fought almost exclusively over the LRT. I mean, yes, of course, there were other issues at play, but that issue, the LRT, sucked up almost all the oxygen in the room, and as a result, it created essentially a one-issue campaign. But recent events, you've heard of them, you've been listening here on the station, you've been reading the papers, you've been watching on TV, have made me and others wonder whether it should have been a one-issue campaign. Andrew Dreschel wrote in the spec today about how councillors knew about the sewage seepage into Shadoke Creek and Coots Paradise before the election, but decided to keep that quiet. But what if voters had known about that? Some time ago also... Uh, Hamilton Bulldogs owner Michael Landlauer said he wanted to get started on working towards a new arena. But Mayor Fred Eisenberger, he says, told him to wait till after the election because according to Ann Lauer, the incumbent didn't want it to become an election issue. Now, Fred Eisenberger says it wasn't like that. He says he told Michael Landlauer that he wouldn't get traction bringing up an arena debate during election season. There was nothing secretive. It was just good advice. Regardless, whatever. It can't help but make people wonder, including me, what Hamilton City Council might have looked like today if all this stuff had been litigated in the election where big municipal issues should be fought. Joining me to talk about this, a man who ran for mayor last time, did not win, Vito Scro joins us. Vito, how are you today? Not too bad, Scott. It's great talking with you again. Well, thanks for coming on. I'm betting that as you've heard this news over the last number of days, the thought has to have crossed your mind about what this might have done to change things. Well, we'll never know, as you said earlier. There's just no way of knowing. But I can guarantee you they wouldn't have gotten more votes if stuff like this would have come out. That's that's one thing that's 100% sure. I'm sure there would have been some changes on council uh, concerning myself. I don't know. Uh, we'll never know. 
but it's just another symptom of, of what is wrong with City Hall, in my opinion. You were right that LRT was the main issue. It was the only issue I felt that would gather the public's uh, 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 that the public would notice. But there were other things that concerned me, and one of the things was oversight. And this this is just another example how we need another level of oversight that has nothing to do with the city. So this doesn't shock me that that things are like this are happening. I've been dealing with the city for about 15 years now. Uh, first, when I was on the Port Authority. And I can tell you stories of things like this that happened. I was there the last two months of heck fine when I, I wrote a letter to the council that became public. And I basically said, please shut this place down. It's the most dysfunctional place I've ever seen. I mean, there's just example after example after example of things like this happening. So it doesn't surprise me, unfortunately. Well, th- many of the councillors that are quoted by Andrew Dreschel have said that keeping this quiet had nothing to do with the election, and I'm not a mind reader, so whether it was legal issues or whether it was financial issues or whatever else, I, the, people can make those decisions on their own. I'm going to leave that for people to make up their own minds on. But I think that there's no way, I would think, around the idea that if this had been out in the open, the conversation would have been altered in the, in the election. Well, let me give you an example. I, I was on HEC 5 the last two months of its existence. The year before I got there, there was that surprise $4 million loss uh, that council didn't know till after the 2010 election. I asked my board members, what, like, how, did that, how did you keep that quiet? They purposely scheduled board meetings when they knew that the two councillors on the board could not attend. Saturday morning at 8 in the morning or something. And it shocked me. So it didn't surprise me that this happened. And I was just told straight out, we didn't want this to be an election issue. There are many examples. When I was on the Port Authority, we leased here 7 and 8, where Williams is now, from the city. There was a question of which should we be paying property taxes, one government agent to another. We did our research, and we found out, yes, we owe the city money. We told the city, we owe you hundreds of thousands of dollars. They didn't return our call. They wouldn't deal with it because they did not want to be embarrassed to tell city council that they screwed up. Now, mistakes happen. I'm not going to fault people for that. But this, this secrecy, I, let's cover our butt kind of thing, is, is been prevalent for decades. And we've got to do something to change that. That was one of the reasons why I ran. Now, LRT, you can be for it, you can be against it. I was on the board of IO. Infrastructure Ontario does the RFP for LRT. My last board meeting, um, I, it was issued. I saw the, uh, the RFP for LRT. I can tell you I have no confidence in city administration or council that they can run a project like that. It will be an unmitigated disaster if they do, unless something changes and something drastic. Going back to that central point, would you, and it's, I mean, again, it's revisionist history, I suppose, or it's looking back, but would you have run your campaign differently or would you have concentrated on different things or done anything differently if this sewer story had been known to the public before you got onto the campaign trail? So if you took a look at my platform, obviously LRT was the main issue. But right underneath that, I talked about creating an Auditor General's office. Uh, the, the provincial government has one. And actually, she, re- she released her report today that you can look up online. And you can take a look at the kind of things that office looks at. To me, this was very important in terms of government governance. Um, I, I propose that the province created this office that is completely independent from city council. They're, they're not city employees. They would have the legislative power to, to review all information, not just financial, but otherwise, maintenance schedules, road work, pay everything, and make a report completely independent 
to the public every year like the Auditor General does provincially and federally. And if things like that would happen, um, people who are employees of the city who are afraid to say anything could go to this office without fear of retribution. I can't believe that the province doesn't mandate this for, for cities this size, not just Hamilton. Now, I would also recommend, if I would have won, I would have recommended the province that this office has the power to suggest removal of office of politicians for things like this. That's the only recourse we would have. And I, 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 this would have been one of my main priorities. We need the confidence back to, to run important programs like this. How are we ever going to get infrastructure, housing, things like that done? I have no confidence in this administration and this council to do that right now. Do you believe? So I would have made that my, my, probably my co it would have tied into each other. Do you believe then, from what, I, from what you're saying, do you believe that the mayor and or members of council should be removed for this? Well, there would be a set of criteria that the, the provincial government would have set down, but the, we'd definitely be talking about it. Uh, I don't know if this is criminal. I'm not a lawyer. This would be from, for somebody outside with the, the legal knowledge to decide that. But there is a mechanism, or a recourse for something like this. It sounds to me, based on especially what you said just before the break, it sounds to me like you believe that there are other things that we don't know about so far that may be interesting at council that we could learn about later. Am I reading right? So I spoke with many members and the hierarchy of the Amalgamated Transit Union, the union for the HSR. I spoke to QP5167, their biggest union in the city. If I would have been elected... I would have started at the rank and file. That's how you find out how things were happening. And the horror stories I heard were shocking. If I was elected, and of course, the mayor is only one vote, never never forget that, I would have called for the complete firing of the HSR management. And I would have reworked public works and probably had a lot of changes there too. There's a lot we have to fix. In your heart of hearts, though, when you, you've said a couple times, if I had been elected, if this information had been out, because you've seen the anger around this, you've read the, pa- the papers and seen the letters to the editor and seen the comments and heard the comments, in your heart of hearts, do you believe the result, honestly, when you lie there in bed at night, do you believe the result would have been different if this had been public? I, I don't worry about stuff like that, I'll be honest with you, Scott. I mean, you know, I woke up the next day, I was smiling, I did the best I could, I gave it everything I had. I, I, I did what I could. The people, based on what they, they knew, they decided. And, you know, my life went on. I, I'm more worried about getting this fixed than worrying about what happened a year ago. I, I truly, honestly believe that. I'm never going to be defined if I'm going to be an elected official. You know, I, I would have served. It would have been an honor. But life goes on. It's, uh, you know, the, the, the part about this that I always find interesting, and I'm not, uh, I'm not doubting you, um, is that so many times we hear people say, if I get into office, I will do this and I'll make these huge changes. And then when they're in, those changes don't come because suddenly the trappings of the office or the rules of the office or the advice they get tells them, no, no, this is why we have to do it. And things don't change that. I mean, it seems harder to move things than it, uh, we'd like to believe it is, I guess. Again, uh, I can only speak for myself. This was never a lifelong goal for me. I'm 55 years old. I, I didn't ever think I was going to run. I enjoy politics. I, I do a lot of the organizing. Uh, as people who know me, they know that. Uh, I would have been fine never doing I actually looked for someone else with better name recognition to run, and I would have helped run their campaign. It, it, the issue was more important than me becoming mayor. Um, I would have. It would have been an honor, don't get me wrong. But it was not a lifelong career, and, you know, life is going on for me. I'm 
it's been a rough year for me personally, but I'm happy. Vito Scro, appreciate you taking some time to come on today. Thanks for doing this. No, my pleasure. Have a great night. That is uh, Vito Scro who ran for me. Now, again, it's one of those questions we'll never know the answer to, and, and the result may be exactly the same. But I've heard a number of people, and I again, I encourage you to go read Andrew Dreschel's piece because it's a really interesting hypothetical. How would things, if at all, been different in the municipal election if all this stuff that we knew about what was going on had been out? Maybe... If it had been public, nobody would be mad at council because this seems, it seems as that them not telling us is what's made people more furious than anything. Maybe if they had told us, nobody would have been mad at council and there would be no difference from the council that we see right now. Who knows? But it's an interesting thing to contemplate how this may have looked different. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. For a number of years now, there has been something called the Apostrophe Protection Society. It's a niche group and it's determined to ensure proper use of that little hanging comma that causes people so much angst. We'll call it the hanging comma. If you didn't know what an apostrophe was, you're probably already going to be missing the point of this whole segment. Uh, and Anyway, there was such a thing, at least. This week it folded. Uh, the founder wrote this, We and our many supporters worldwide have done our best, but the ignorance and laziness present in modern times have won. It's kind of depressing. Um, now we can get into it, all kinds of deep discussions about the apostrophe and its usage, but that may be slightly specific. On a broader scale, though, this made me wonder about grammar and about spelling. Is it still important in 2019 when social media is how we communicate very often and we shorten words and make up new words and change spellings, does it matter anymore? Dr. Paul Boudre is a professor. He's the former chair of the English department at Simon Fraser University in BC, now the head of SFU Publications. He's written a number of books, including From Text to Texting, T-X-T, I-N-G, uh, New Media in the Classroom. He joins us now. Dr. Boudre, thanks for doing this today. Uh, I'm not going to lie that for me, I'm a professional writer, so probably it makes some sense, but bad grammar and wrong spelling drives me a little bit nuts, but I'm wondering if to the average person who just is looking at something online or whatever else, does it matter? It depends on uh, what they're looking at. Clearly, uh, people will be the tweets of Donald Trump and don't care whether they're spelled <laughs> properly or the grammar works or they make uh, e- even contain words that make sense sometimes. Uh, but if you want to communicate information that is more complicated, more important, instructions, business memos, things like that, then yes, it matters very much. Do you believe that people still make judgments on a person's intelligence or their education or those kind of things when they read something and see bad spelling or bad grammar? Well, I have to say, I'm, 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 a, you know, I'm a professor, and most of my friends happen to be professors, so we tend to be a little bit judgmental about those things. <laughs> so if, a, if an essay or an assignment shows up and there's spelling mistakes littered throughout or grammar mistakes... Yeah. You, I mean, obviously you're grading the paper, so you have to look at it with a critical eye, but let's say you just look at the comments on a social media page at the end of a newspaper article or whatever. Do you even consciously or subconsciously, do you look at those spelling mistakes or those grammar, the way things are written and say that person's intelligent or that person isn't? I don't know if I say that they're intelligent, but it's, it's rather education. Uh, what has happened over the past, oh, really since the late 1960s, is the grammar has, for the most part, ceased to be taught uh, in mm. the K-12 system. And uh, because there was this sort of revolution in pedagogy in the late 1960s. 
And so students simply aren't taught grammar. They, it's not their fault. Uh, and when they get onto social media, they use any shortcuts they can because they don't have anything else in their toolbox. So it's actually a failure, I think, of the education system. So if someone doesn't know how to use an apostrophe, and that seems to be increasingly you know, the majority of the population, I'm sure it's because they've never had a teacher sit down and tell them how to do it properly. Why don't we teach that anymore, then? I, well, in, in, in the late 1960s, it was really 1966 at this large pedagogical conference in Dartmouth, uh, they came up with this idea of process learning, and that's become the standard in education ever since, even though uh, uh, the ability of students to write demonstrably decreased after this new process was introduced, but they haven't gone back. And of course, the teachers now, they've never been taught how to write, so they're not exactly in a position to teach grammar themselves to their students. So it's become self-perpetuating. So we're into the, we're basically into the second generation then. The teachers who are now teaching are the ones who were the first ones through that new learning process. Well, I think we're probably in the third generation by now because it was the 1960s. I graduated high school in 1975, and I was never taught a, a a lot of basic uh, English grammar. I mean, this is so long ago, they had Latin classes in my high school, so I got grammar in Latin rather than the English classes. But there is, it seems, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, but it does seem that we have largely educationally scoffed now at the idea of rote learning, and I'm not talking about writing, but R-O-T-E, like yeah. sitting there and memorizing how something is done. As you say, it's process now, but isn't grammar and isn't spelling only learned through repetition and going over and over and over and having that very strict repetition? Let's put spelling to the side for a minute, uh, because that's, that's a different matter. But with, with the grammar, grammar is simply a set of rules that allows you to communicate clearly. We, it's, it's a skill, right? We can teach these skills. Now, we teach students in music classes how to do scales. We teach them basic music theory. We teach them in phys ed, phys ed class the rules of baseball. If we teach them the rules of baseball, why can't we teach them the rules of written communication? But you would think that you would that, that that math, for example, would be the ideal for that because math follows very strict patterns, and yet we've moved away to process math as well as opposed to just strict math. Yes, uh, but fortunately, there we have tools. Uh, now we, we carry calculators in our phones that could do a lot of the heavy lifting for us. But you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it does seem that if you're a kid who has never been taught this. Grammar is one of those things that doesn't just by osmosis pop into your head, unless you're a voracious reader and maybe pick it up that way. No, this is exactly right. And the theory seemed to have been that, you know, but students just read and write that they'll somehow absorb grammar. But I can tell you from over 30 years of teaching at the university, this is simply not true. It, it hasn't worked out that way. Students who are voracious readers will tend to be better writers because they've just had more you know, exposure. Uh, but even then, very often, they're, they're guessing when, again... A right, because it sounds correct. It sounds yeah. correct to them, but they don't know why. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and what really drives me nuts is the rules that they need are really not that difficult to teach. I've done it, uh, and they don't take that long to teach the basic rules. Students don't need the very fancy, arcane, you know, subjunctive, conjunctive, <laughs> too perfect. They don't need that. They need to know what a sentence fragment is, what a run-on sentence is, how 
punctuation works, how apostrophes work, to make themselves clear. And it doesn't take that long to teach. Again, I know because I've done it. And Paul, a couple things I want to run through, a couple comments that I read online today as I was on the internet looking at a bunch of these comments about grammar. One comment that somebody made was, we shouldn't worry about it much because if you're really upset about grammar, if you're getting really sticklerish about grammar, you are simply an elitist. We are past the days when you need to be worried about this stuff. Well, again, uh, if I was uh, in a a business, for example, I wouldn't want to hire that person uh, to write contracts, uh, to write business memos. Uh, If I wanted that person to uh, write out detailed instructions uh, about a process, about uh, some uh, manufactured item, uh, you need need clarity uh, uh, to communicate. And... Uh, I think what's happened increasingly, of course, now is people are communicating face-to-face over their phones, and so they're not having to write things down. But if you don't have that immediacy of face-to-face contact, you have to be absolutely clear or people will be misled. Another one that I read, and I found this one fascinating, although I can see where this one's coming from uh, based on a lot of sort of the move, the way society is going. Uh, They've argued that rigid grammar rules conflict with creativity. And therefore, if you make someone write or spell something a certain way, it it gets in the way of their uniqueness. No, absolutely not. Uh, And this was one of the things going back to the 1960s. The idea was if we teach them these rules, you know, this is somehow going to stifle their creativity. Well, I haven't seen an explosion of Shakespeare. Uh, since we got rid of grammar. Um, and, and again, I would come back to something like music. Um, and if, you, if you're interested in music, you sit down and you learn your scales. You learn your chord theory, and that gives you a series of tools that allows you to be creative. Right? And it's the same thing with writing. You can be as creative as you want in your own little mind, but if, you, if you're not communicating clearly, and that's all grammar does, it makes your writing clear, then you're just writing for yourself, and no one's going to read it. The third thing that I read today, which uh, probably was the most depressing, I guess, was that we can't teach grammar now. And you touched on this a few moments ago, because most of the people now who would be teaching it don't know it themselves. And so therefore, if you can't instruct it, you can't teach it. And therefore, we're too far past the point. So we can't really pick it up. Yes. So I made that point. I mean, I can think of examples. I remember uh, when one of my sons was in, I don't know, I can't remember something, grade three or four, and they had to do some sort of writing. Uh, His teacher told him that the word the was an adjective, uh, and I had to write a a pointed, pointed letter. But again, that teacher has never been taught grammar. So, I mean, to do this, we have to go to the faculties of education and uh, say, let's teach them the, the skills they need to teach grammar. And then we have to carve out a bit of time from K to 12, and I believe there is time, uh, to teach them these basic skills. You're a professor, as I said a few moments ago. You see essays, you see assignments. How is this manifesting itself? Can you see that this people are having struggles with grammar? Yes, and, and uh, it, it, you know, one of the things that a lot of people talk about now is say, well, the reason students can't write is because they're twittering or they're on Facebook and stuff like that, and that's not true, because I've been teaching 30 years at SFU. I taught five years before that in the uh, Ontario college system, and for all that period, people have been complaining about student writing. So it really began with this change in the late 60s. It's not tied to social media. Maybe social media is making it worse, 
because now there are all sorts of shorthands and emoticons, so people can be a little bit, you know, lazy. Um, but it's not tied to that. It really is tied to our failure to educate. And it strikes me that if you were someone who's trying to separate yourself applying for jobs or coming out of university and mm-hmm. trying to do something that will get you noticed, yeah. learning grammar probably when you file your resume and yours is the clean one that's spelled right and has the proper grammar, I mean, you're going to stand out, it would seem, at this point. Absolutely. And, and, and I mean, I, I've, I've been on a lot of hiring committees in my day. And if we're hiring, say, oh, an assistant to a department chair, oh, we send them into the room and give them a writing assignment. Write this memo, right? Because, and, and if it's grammatically incorrect, that person's not going to get the job because that person is representing an authority figure or representing the institution itself. And so you want people who can do that clearly and without obvious errors. Do you think most people, even if they don't know grammar per se, do you think most people have an ear to understand when grammar is wrong? They may not be able to tell you why it's wrong or when it's right, but do you think most people can hear bad grammar even now and say there's something wrong with that? I think the pe- people who, who read, I think that's true. People who don't read at all, I think that's probably less true. Uh, but I think people who read, yes. Uh, but even them, even, uh, even they uh, sometimes get confused about things like apostrophe use. I got to run, but uh, one last thing. Is this, sure. from your experience, is this just a North American thing because we're trying to be casual and be individual and, and like l- l- lax the rules or lessen the rules on everything? Or is this everywhere that people are trying to break these rules and let it go? Uh, no, it's not everywhere, and certainly, and I'm not an expert on this, but I just know from having lived in Japan and, and, uh, and done a lot of travel in certain other cultures, uh, they still teach very carefully uh, the grammar uh, uh, to, to students. In, in, in a country like Japan, which has a very complicated grammar, has an incredibly complicated triple alphabet, uh, they, they teach these students to get a basic level of literacy before they graduate. It's a fascinating topic. Uh, really appreciate your time. Dr. Paul Boudreau from Simon Fraser University. Really appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Uh, I said to Will, is on the other side of the glass today. We're going to take a break, but I said to Will a few moments ago, I can, I can hear bad grammar immediately, and it's like someone playing a piano scale and hitting a wrong note when they hit the wrong grammar. I can't, I can't always tell you why, but I can almost always say, oh, that's not right. And I think a lot of people are like that. We just don't know why it's wrong. We just know it's wrong. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. On December 9th, the World Anti-Doping Agency is going to meet to consider a recommendation that Russia be banned from the Olympics for four years for doping violations. In case you're just tuning in, this is not a replay of a show from a few years ago, though it could be. You may recall that a little while back, uh, Russia received a ban for unbelievable systemic doping violations at Sochi. And if you watch the movie Icarus, and I highly encourage you to do so, you'll know the details. Apparently, things have not improved all that much. Here, let me read you what the New York Times wrote about the current situation. This will help break down what we're dealing with here. Russia's deletion and manipulation of thousands of drug testing records have cast the credibility of hundreds of Russian athletes into doubt and raised uncomfortable questions about the integrity of next summer's Tokyo Olympics. Russia's actions, part of an organized scheme laid out last month in an 88-page report produced by investigators from the World Anti-Doping Agency, have also made determining which athletes cheated and which did not a Sisyphean 
challenge. Sisyphean, well, I can't say the word, but anyway, a big challenge. Uh, the records, what they're saying is the records of at least 145 Russian athletes suspected of doping have either been altered or deleted, so we really can't know what's going on. It's a mess. And mostly for clean athletes around the world who now can't know if the playing field that they are about to be competing on is level or not, which is something my next guest knows all about. Becky Scott was a gold medalist in the Olympics in cross country, but only after two Russians who finished ahead of her were disqualified for doping. Uh, She also won a silver medal four years later. Since her retirement, she's been a passionate anti-doping advocate, even sitting as head of the World Anti-Doping Agency's Athletes Committee until last month she joins us. Now, Becky, thanks for doing this today. Thank you for having me. I I have to wonder, and I don't even know if you can answer this question with all your history and even with all your knowledge of this, but uh, how could this possibly be happening again so soon? (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a question a lot of people are asking. And, you know, it just, it seems to be the story that never ends and, uh, and just continues to, to unfold and unravel. And unfortunately it's really, um, dealt a, a severe blow to the credibility of the anti-doping system in general because of the way it's been handled and the way it's been managed, which is to a lot of people without any real sense of authority or or accountability to to clean sport. What, was it a mistake last time? Because after the initial penalty was handed down, then the sanctions were lifted and there were some people who were lobbying for even lighter sanctions. Did, was that a mistake to not come down with sort of a hammer right away and send the message that this will absolutely not be tolerated and the penalty is going to be severe. Did it, did it send a message that maybe there's wiggle room here? I think it did. And, you know, I think that's the belief of many. Of course, that's, that's uh, it's a controversial position to have taken. But, you know, when the McLaren report uh, emerged prior to the 2016 Olympic Games, WADA itself called for a blanket ban of Russia for for uh, to, to, to serve as a consequence and a penalty for for the revelation of this, a state-sponsored doping system that had been, you know, defrauding athletes for years, and that recommendation was rejected by the IOC, and instead, you know, a system was put in place where all the international federations had to vet athletes and try to, you know, determine who could and could not compete, and it really became just a complex and um, really, really difficult to understand exercise in which, in the end, a lot of Russian athletes did end up competing and, and being present at the game, which is the same thing that happened you know, two years later in Pyeongchang, and we're probably facing a very similar situation once again. A few and years ago, sorry, a couple of years ago, I had Jesse Lumsden on here, who of course was in either, I think three Olympics, he was in in, in bobsleigh, and we talked about Icarus, because it was shortly after the movie had come out. I assume you've seen the movie Icarus? I'm in the movie Icarus. Okay, I, I forgot about that. You know, so, so you've probably seen it then. I uh, have seen it. <laughs> when, when you first, well, you must have then known about some of the revelations that were going to be in there, but when you saw that movie and saw the whole thing laid out, and they did an exceptional job of explaining the whole thing, wh- what was your initial reaction to that? Because I think a lot of people, it was just jaw-dropping. It was jaw-dropping, you know, and I think the stunning piece of that movie and the one that should really resonate with a lot of people is the the, the impact that it had on people's lives. Like, there, this was this became life and death for some people who were involved and implicated, and very, very serious. 
And, uh, you know, the the response from the sporting community was so insufficient and inadequate in light of that. And uh, yeah, it, was, it was difficult to accept at the time, you know, that this kind of, of corruption and this level of, of fraud and, you know, abuse of athletes, because really, let's be honest, the, the Russian athletes in that system are, are as much uh, victims as the clean athletes outside of the system. I mean, they have often had no choice but to participate. So the, the scale of the corruption and the frauding, you know, the fraud that went on was incredible and shocking. Well, and what it did, too, and what's truly unfortunate is I assume there are a fair number of clean Russian athletes. I, I'm not going to ca- throw a blanket over every Russian athlete and say they're all dirty, but when they've done this, and then with what's going on now with the modification of the records and everything else, is we have no idea now, so suspicion now even falls onto those who are clean. They can't prove that they're clean because who knows what records have been tampered with and what haven't. Yeah, that's correct. You know, it's really left a big question mark hanging over everyone, and... Um, and we'll likely never know. You talked about the life and death, and certainly there are people whose lives were threatened by this, but there are other things too. I mean, it's there are athletes, not just Russian athletes, who this affects. And, and you, and I know you've probably told your story a million times, so I'm going to ask you to tell it one more time, but you were affected by this because as I said off the top, I mean, you... You were a gold medalist, but you didn't get to have that experience per- exactly of being a gold medalist. How, explain what happened and how you ended up being a gold medalist. So uh, when I won a medal at the Olympics in 2002, it was a bronze medal initially. And then, you know, uh, the two women who finished in front of me, the gold and silver medalists, tested positive for performance-enhancing drugs. Um, and then over the course of two years, their medals were... Uh, subsequently um, revoked and uh, reallocated. And so I went from a bronze medal to actually having a silver medal and a silver medal ceremony and then having to send that back and having and, and being upgraded to gold and having a gold medal ceremony. So which is great. Tell, yeah. Which is great, yeah. but you dreamed, I'm sure, like every other person who's ever trained for the Olympics, of standing on the top of the podium at the Olympics, having your national anthem played in that environment you never got that. No, you know, I'm not like the experience itself on the day at the Olympics for myself personally wasn't wasn't disappointing. You know, it was a bronze medal, and at the time, it was a pretty exciting moment. Even so, I recognize that bringing a bronze home from the Olympics is not the same as bringing a gold home for the from the Olympics. And so, any kind of opportunities, you know, like endorsement or you know any kind of well, yeah, opportunities that come the way of an Olympic gold medalist do not come the way of an Olympic bronze medalist. So that's where I feel like I really miss out on an opportunity that could have, you know, been very rewarding. Do I also understand that you were eventually given your gold medal in a very small ceremony in an art gallery somewhere? Uh, on the steps of the Vancouver Art Gallery, yes, in Vancouver. <laughs> I mean, again, lovely to have the gold medal, not quite the same, I'm guessing, feeling and moment that you would have had if you had got that in Salt Lake City at the Olympics in the, in. The, I mean, I guess it wasn't at the stadium then. They did them downtown at the uh, on the stage, but it, it's not the same. No, it's not the same, and uh, it'll never be the same. The moment will, you know, forever be gone. 
And I'm not the only one who's lived through this. You know, most recently we had Christine Gerard, uh, the weightlifter, who right. was awarded her gold medal, you know, after years and years of waiting. So it's it's become so common, in fact, that the IOC has developed a medals reallocation program <laughs> where now, um, you know, they're hosting the medal reallocation event at the Olympics or at another event of the athlete's choice because it's gotten so commonplace for athletes to to test positive and to have their medals redistributed after after the fact because you, of doping. You became very passionate about this, as I said off the top, and you became very involved with WADA, with the World Anti-Doping Agency, to try and help with this. And so you have a, you have a much more up-close and personal view of this than even most athletes who have competed. How prevalent do you believe doping still is? I mean, obviously we've got these issues with Russia, but beyond Russia even, how prevalent is it still in the games and still in amateur athletics? You know, it's really difficult to say, and I, I wouldn't speculate by trying to put a number or a percentage on it. To be honest, uh, I think there's a, and there's a wide variety of of uh, the level or amounts that go on per sport, so it's, it's often very sport-specific, and, you know, the level of risk often, unfortunately, is, is regional also. So it's, that's a tricky one to answer, but if I was to say, have things improved much over the years, you know, my answer probably would be no. And um, it, it just, it's just, it seems like an impossible game to keep up with. And, and from what I've seen on the inside is that the, the willpower and the incentive and motivation to keep up with it, you know, in terms of, of catching drug cheats is, is really uh, not as strong as it could be either, unfortunately. Okay, so it's still, you're right, it's very difficult still to catch them because they always seem to be a step ahead. But when we do catch them, why do you believe that there is such hesitancy to just come down on them with an iron fist and say, you know what, there's just no tolerance for this, I'm sorry, you're done. Why is there, why are we so skittish about really, really heavy, heavy, having heavy penalties for this? Um, well, in my view, the, the reason is that uh, there's, you know, a tremendous amount of people and interest in keeping sport as a business. And sport is very lucrative as a business. And I think that the common view among those uh, at the top of it is that scandal and doping and is bad for business and it, it tarnishes the brand and it isn't something that we want to have to deal with when we're when we have you know mega stars and athletes who can generate tremendous amounts of revenue just by being there and tv viewership and sponsors and all the rest and um you know we we don't want to have that athlete you know revealed as a fraud so were, and, uh, were we then back in 1988 when Canada had the Ben Johnson situation and went through the Dubbin report and everything else, were we as Canadian suckers for being so self-punitive? We could have just, you know, done something, I guess, a lot easier or fought it and Ben Johnson could have still raced and we could have still won medals for our country. No, I, I don't think that's, uh, you know, that should have been the approach. I, honestly, I think that uh, Canadians... Uh, among other countries and other you know regions of the world still hold sport very in very high regard and also as a place that you can look to for integrity and principles and fairness and and should and so um you know did have we had athletes who cheated the system and you you know 
been dopers in the past. Absolutely, no no nation is immune. But um, you know, part of deterrence is also, I think, for a lot of countries and a lot of athletes, is the embarrassment and the shame factor as well. And so, if that's the case in Canada, that's not a bad thing. We only have a minute or two left here, but you mentioned that last time uh, Russian athletes, a number of them, were still allowed to compete, even though Russia itself was banned from the Olympics. They they competed under a neutral, under an Olympic flag, not an, a Russian flag. This time, second time around now for this kind of thing, would a blanket ban, do you think, do the trick? Would it finally send a message or would it maybe send a message or would it not send a message? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's the million dollar question. And my personal feeling is that it would send a message and it is finally time to say enough is enough because this is, uh, they've had multiple chances. They have, you know, they were reinstated in 2018 before they met the conditions of reinstatement under the promise or under the guise of providing this data, you know, unaltered and in its complete state. First, they missed the deadline. Now the data has been revealed to be, you know, completely manipulated and altered. And I, I just think, you know, what does it take to finally, um, you know, come down with with a, a penalty or sanction that, that meets the gravity of the offense? And so what has been the approach so far has been, you know, com- complacency, com- I mean, um, complicity. And it just it's been this approach of, you know, we'll we'll make concessions, we'll continue to to work together and try to figure this out. When when if you are the world's leading authority on this kind of thing and someone has created such someone has, a, you know, really made a mockery of the world, as has been done now for last number of years, you need to impose a penalty that's severe and and grave and is going to be taken seriously and maybe will make a difference. And you've sat around the boardrooms and in the boardrooms around the table, you've sat with the people at WADA. Do you believe the, I don't know if the right word I'll, I'll go with, do you think the spine is there to finally do this? Do you think that they could do something like this when they have their meeting? I think they've always had the, the opportunity and the to do something like this. No, and but do you think they will do it now, or they, they would have the? I think they will. Yeah. Uh, have they been embarrassed enough by Russia having taken advantage of them last time to say, "Listen, you had your chance no longer." We'll see. Oh, last thing: if they did, if WADA, when they meet on the ninth, if WADA was to say we're coming down hard, do you think the IOC would follow? Or do we have so many levels of bureaucracy here that it just we can never get everybody aligned to do the right thing? Well, you have to remember that WADA is 50% IOC. So whatever decision WADA comes down with will have been made in really collaboration with the IOC because that's how the, the executive board is structured. Um, the IOC has already said they don't believe in collective punishment. They don't believe in a blanket ban. They've even gone as far as saying they don't think that the Russian Olympic uh, Committee was involved or should be implicated, which is also one of the recommendations from the Compliance Review Committee, which is a ban on those officials from participating in Olympic Games. I think it's going to be a very difficult and uncomfortable conversation, and uh, we'll see where it goes. Becky Scott, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Uh, it, look, it, it's a... It is incredibly complicated, made more complicated by the fact that in the Olympics, one of the biggest countries in the world, one of the most successful over the years, for better or for worse, fairly or not, has been Russia. 
And so if you're the IOC, if you're WADA, you've got this information that apparently shows widespread manipulation again of Russian samples. Do you really want to kick Russia out of the games completely? Do you really want to ban all the athletes? Do you really want that country with that many people that's that invested in sports in the Olympics? Do you really want to tell them you're not part of this again? I mean, it's, you probably should. In fact, based on the evidence we're reading about, you absolutely should, but will they? Uh, and by the way, if you, when we were talking about Icarus, if you've not seen Icarus, I think it's still on Netflix. I'll give you the pricey version of what was in there that Becky was talking about. Basically what they found, and Icarus is not a movie about this, it stumbled on this. It's a documentary and it stumbled onto this. In the Sochi Olympics in Russia, in the doping center, they had built holes in the wall. So at night after the Russian samples were taken that might've had dirty urine, there was a hole in the wall so they could pass them through a hole in the wall to someone on the other side who would then pass a vial of clean urine back in with the label. I mean, it was the most highly organized stealth cloak and dagger way to make sure that Russians were not testing positive in their own Olympics, in the building that they built that was guarded by their police which is why they got banned last time and now we have a whole new series of allegations about doing other stuff as i say i asked her because i f- this to me is really gets down to the crux of this the other athletes and it's not just russians who by the way are sometimes and not all russians but it's not just them who are using stuff they shouldn't be. But if you're an athlete who goes to the Olympics to compete clean, who does things fairly, at the very least, you deserve a level playing field. At the very best, if you win, you should have the opportunity to be celebrated there, to have your anthem played, and then to come home and have opportunities to make some money off of that because heaven knows you're not making a lot of money beforehand when you're training. To have all of that taken away is, is, well, no, it is. It's immoral. It's completely immoral and needs to be fixed. It really does. It absolutely does. And I hope they will. We'll see. They have waffled and vacillated in the past. And Becky is no longer with WADA partially because they waffled and vacillated. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.